Okay, will you bow with me in prayer before our gracious Heavenly Father? Lord, we come to you uh, once again this morning uh, asking for your help, pleading with you to be with us as we pay attention to your word. Lord, your word is life to us. Lord, we perish without your word. Lord, we need your character, your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your holiness, your justice, your truth to, to live, Lord. You, you've, made us for our, you've made us for yourself. And apart from you, we are nothing. We are weak. We, are, we do not live out who we've, you've made us to be. Lord, we need you. And your word is the way in which we understand who you are. And your word is how you fill us and cause us to stand. So, Lord, we ask, we plead with you, use your word and your spirit in our lives as a community of believers to encourage us, to empower us, to fill us, that we may walk in newness of life, that we may live our lives boldly for you, that we may carry out the responsibilities and things that you've given us to do in this life. Lord, some of us are facing difficult circumstances. Lord, some of us dread the holidays because it means who we've lost. It means remembering who we've lost. It means facing difficult family situations. It means considering loss and loneliness. Lord, fill us with your spirit that we may understand who we are in Christ as being foundational to everything else and face whatever difficulties and trials with the bold assurance that you are good to us in Christ and your goodness will not forsake us. Lord, we pray for those who would love to be here this morning but can't be with us. Lord, we pray for Claudia who broke her ankle. Lord, comfort her in this time and surround her with people who can serve her and help her. Lord, we pray for Anora who is at home with a high fever. Lord, give her grace to feel better and we pray you'd bring her back with us too. Lord, we pray also for those who are part of our church family that have coveted together to be with us, yet for... Uh, sinful reasons have just chosen not to be part of our our worship service, Lord. You command us to assemble ourselves together. So Lord, we pray that you would call your church together. We pray you would bring them back. Help us as a church care for them and speak lovingly to them. Lord, we pray that you give us help understanding your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week... We're looking at the book of Ruth, after Judges, Ruth, and Ruth is a much happier book, I I think you agree, and it's nice to do that, especially around Christmas time. It's tied into the Christmas season, too, because it centers around Bethlehem, and a child born in Bethlehem, foreshadowing the child that we celebrate uh, today. Last week, I asked you to think a little bit about what it means to feel alone, if you've ever felt alone. To feel like you were the leftovers, which is how Ruth felt like, uh, is what Ruth felt like in the passage we looked at. And if you missed last week, let me just briefly recap where we were. Uh, We looked at um, uh, the family of Naomi and her husband and their two sons. And we saw that in 10 years of devastation, uh, they had everybody uh, leave them. Uh, Naomi's husband died. Her two sons died. Naomi was left with her two daughter-in-laws. And they were there all alone. They, they decided to go back to Bethlehem, where Naomi was from, 
One daughter-in-law decided to stay in her own country with her own people. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, decided to go back with Naomi. And even though Ruth was kind and bound herself to Naomi, she said, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Uh, even though there's, she receives that kindness from her daughter-in-law, it seems to have no effect in her spirit because she arrives in Bethlehem and says, I am I am, uh, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, because the Lord has been bitter toward me. That's where we ended our story. Well, today, I want you to think about something more positive. I wonder if you've ever been in a place where you know you actually don't belong. You don't fit in. And it's, it's clear that you don't really belong. And yet, you receive the kindness of somebody bringing you in anyway. You're not part of a family, perhaps, and yet you are adopted. You are brought into a family. You're not part of this group that you need to be in, and yet you are, because of somebody's kindness, brought into that group. Have you ever experienced that? Being the outsider and the kindness of somebody and bringing you in? Well, if you have, praise God for that. It'll help you understand this passage. But if you haven't ever experienced that kindness, and you still feel like you're the outsider... Well, praise God for this passage, because the kindness that we see here, it, which, which, in which Ruth is brought in, is actually a foreshadowing of the greater kindness that God does for all his people. So let's take a look at the book of Ruth. It's on page 222 in your Bibles. I'm going to, with two comments, two times I'll stop and make comments, read chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, on page 222 in your Bibles begins like this. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Let me stop there for a second because we need to understand how significant that comment is. Uh, It just basically says there that that Naomi's, uh, Naomi's dead husband has a relative and He's a worthy man. Uh, So what? Why is that there? Well, it's there for a really important reason. You have to know that there's a custom in Israel, it's actually part of God's law, that if a husband died leaving his wife with no children, then the closest male relative, usually the dead husband's brother, uh, could do something for that family. He could marry the woman and father children that would be, you have to understand this, counted as the dead husband's children. That was their custom back then. Now, to our ears, that might sound like that's a strange custom. Why in the world would anybody do that? Well, you have to realize that women without children uh, were faced a very difficult situation. They had nobody to care for them. They could starve to death. It was also, so it was a way of caring for the women, and it was also a way of giving descendants to the man, which was very important back then. To have no descendants was to be forgotten. Nobody wanted that. So this act of marrying the woman would be called redeeming the family. And the person who who chose to do that, the man who did that, would be called the kinsman redeemer. Now, it's important that, that you see the note there that he is a worthy man. That's important because it would actually not be in the man's best interest if he was thinking selfishly to do this. He would have to support this family. I mean, the very fact that you redeem somebody implies that there's a price that is paid. 
So this man, out of his own pocket, would have to pay a price for this family that wouldn't actually be counted as his family. He'd have to support the, the children and the wife, and it would not directly benefit him. There's a story in the Bible where people chose not to do that, and they acted dishonorably. Okay, but, but Boaz, we hear, is a worthy man. So this comment about, about Naomi's husband having a relative who's a worthy man, is extremely significant for what's going to follow. Now back to the story. Uh, verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, that is Naomi, said to her, Go, my daughter. Let me stop there one more time so we can understand the story. Uh, you have to know that the something about the welfare system back in ancient Israel. Uh, one more comment briefly about this, and then we'll read the rest of the story. It's a good story, but you've got to know the welfare system, or it's not going to make any sense. See, what happened back then is that, it, you know, we know what to do now if you're, you're in a place where you have no food or no place to live. Well, you can apply for food stamps. You can get unemployment. There's various ways that people are taken care of in this society. Well, back then, the way you would be taken care of is that it was, according to the law, the farmers were not allowed to really harvest from the edges of their field, and they were only allowed to go over and, and pick the grain once. They had to leave something there in the field. And that was so that if you were poor, you could come behind. See, she says she was going to go after him. She's going to go behind the farmer. That, that somebody who was poor could go behind the people who were harvesting the grain, and they could pick up what was left over. That was a provision that God put down in his law to care for the poor people among them. Now, this was not a free food, come and get it kind of thing. It was hard work. You'd have to pick up the grain. It would take a long time. But if you had no money, it was a way that you could be provided for. Ruth is asking her mother-in-law for permission to go and do that very thing. That's what's going on here. Now, back to the rest of the story. Won't make any other interruptions until we read the rest. It's a great story. So she... It's Ruth, went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean from among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field, or do not leave this one, but stay close to my young women. Let your eyes be on this field that they are reaping. And go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you have not known? The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. 
For you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and they ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean, even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. He also pulled out some from the bundles for her to leave. Also pulled out some from the bundles for her to leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephod of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw she had what she had gleaned, so she brought it out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. And she said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man, this man, is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Beside, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you stay close with his women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, that's a, a sweet story, isn't it? I hope the comments that I made in the beginning helped you understand how it, how it flowed and, and the significance of it. I think the most important thing we ought to take from this story is that a change of fortunes have taken place. It, it's a reversal of fortunes. It's that there, there's been a, been a significant difference now from the beginning to the end, right? It started out really bad for them and it ended up highly potentially very good. And the, the really cool thing about this story is, especially how it's written, is that the writer here gives us basically three different perspectives, three different lenses on which to see this reversal. I mean, it's such a significant event in this book and in the lives of these women, and, and actually in redemptive history even, that we don't just hear about that reversal once. We get to see it played out three different times from three different perspectives, and it helps us appreciate it even more. So what we're going to do is let me briefly walk us through these three different perspectives, and each one's a little bit different, so there's something different we can learn from it. The first perspective into this reversal of fortunes is through our own eyes, through the eyes of the reader. You see, we get the the comment, the narrator gives us that comment in verse 1 about this Boaz guy being a worthy man who's a relative. So we know that going in. And then we get to verse 3, and we know something that Ruth doesn't know, right? Ruth, uh, verse 3 says, And she, Ruth, happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And as the reader, we're supposed to look at that and realize, she came to the right field. Out of all the fields she could have gone to, she, she came to that one. The Hebrew is really interesting there. It, it literally says, she happened to happen upon the field. Just happened to happen upon 
that field. That, that's, that's what it says. Interestingly, the phrase is used one other time in the Bible, and that's in the book of Ecclesiastes, to communicate the seemingly absurd nature of life and that random things happen to us all the time, and we don't know what's coming or what's going or what's going to happen in the future. I think, I think that language she happened to happen upon is what, what her perspective was like. She just picked a field. Maybe had 30, 30 fields or, or, or huge field, various parts of the field. She just happened to step on this one. Oh, but, but in God's kindness, this is all part of his plan. This is the field that she was going to go on because God had kindness prepared for her through this man who would show her that kindness. It's all part of God's plan. Now, friends, I think that should be instructive for us. We can learn a lot from this perspective. We face so many different choices in life, don't we? I mean, this even more so than back then. Years ago, you really didn't have that many choices in life. We have far more choices in life than just about any other people on the face of the earth ever. And those choices matter. So think about it. A little extreme example, but you're you're picking a flight because you're going to fly somewhere to see uh, family on the holidays. There's lots of flights you could choose from. On one flight, you might sit next to somebody that's going to change your life. Another flight might blow up over the Atlantic. You don't know. It matters. You pick one. Or, or the, you buy a house. We've done this once in our life. It's a rather terrifying process. You don't know what's going to happen. The house could be a great blessing for your family for years to come. Or the house could have all kinds of problems and it could leave you bankrupt. And you really don't know. There's a point where you just have to pick one and you're going in blind. Or you get married, and you really don't know what the person's character is going to be like in the next 30 years. They could be a great, the greatest source of earthly joy or your greatest pain, and you don't know. We should take, you know, you're like, where's the encouragement in this? <laughs> the encouragement is that what seems like, you know, happenstance, it seems like you happen to happen upon this one, is planned by God. By the good and gracious, loving God who has good plans for us. And one thing happens, another thing happens. It seems like it has no rhyme or reason. It feels absurd. But, But God is in charge. God has a plan. Now, friends, I'm not saying two things. One, I'm not saying that, therefore, you should somehow read from the details of your life the hidden plan of God. And and you should think to yourself, well, because X happened, I know Y will happen. So, therefore, you know, I think I can understand God's will because of all these little minute details of my life. No, you're going to drive yourself crazy by doing that. The other thing you shouldn't say is that uh, because God has a plan, I don't have to act faithfully. It doesn't matter what I do. No, we have to act in a responsible way. And because God has a plan, actually fills our, gives us motivation to act in that responsible way. But, but I am saying we should do this. We should relax. We should do our due diligence, you know, be faithful, but we should not worry about the things outside of our control. We should make the best decisions we can, trusting in God, and then rest in the fact that what can seem like random events to us is actually God's plan. Consider this thought experiment. What if you told Ruth, she's about ready, she leaves the house, she's going to go to the field. You said, Ruth, guess what? I know the mind of, I know, I know the future, or at least I know potentially the future. I know that there's 30 fields you can choose from. In, in uh, three of them, you'll be attacked. One of them, you'll be killed. Only five of them will actually let you pick grain, but there's one 
owned by a wealthy single guy who will change your life and make it wonderful. Okay, Ruth, go out and pick the field. <laughs> what is that going to be like? It's going to be terrifyingly difficult. But what if he said to her, Ruth, God is sovereign and God is perfect, and he has a good plan for your life. Trust in his faithfulness. Go out and pick a field. Well, friends, what would that be like? Well, I think she'd go out boldly. She'd go out with confidence, knowing that whatever she decided, God would, would use and had chosen for her, her good. Friends, the second of those options is the one that fits with the theology of this book. But how much do we spend our lives really trying to do the first option there? We agonize over, over things that we really have no way of knowing. And even if we did know, we have no way of controlling. I think about how much time I've spent worrying about things that are outside of my control. I try to justify it by saying that I'm just thinking through the contingencies, but in real, reality, I'm just not entrusting myself to God. Friends, where do you need to stop worrying and, and say, and, and trust in God's goodness? Where do you need to rest that his plan is good so you can take comfort in that? Now, second perspective of the change of fortune, fortunes in this book, and that is through the eyes of Ruth. And in my mind, this is the one that's the most fun to look at. So let's try, as much as we can, to put ourselves in Ruth's shoes here and try to experience it with her. You're Ruth, okay? You've worked for a good part of the day in the the hot sun, and I'm going to fill in a few of the details that I think are plausible that I'm not exactly sure of, so just to kind of make us realize that it's a real event, okay? You've worked all day in the hot sun, and you've worked in this field, and you know you don't belong there. Okay, there's, there's other workers, and they actually belong to the field. You're the foreigner. You're the, the one who doesn't, who's not one of the servants. You're there. You don't belong. But you're working in the field anyway because this is the way that you're going to live. And then you see the landowner come back. He came back from Bethlehem. You realize he's the landowner because of the way he interacts with the guy who's in charge. And you realize they're talking about you. And that's probably not good because you want to just fly under the radar screen and get your grain and then go home. But they're talking about you, and the man in charge calls you a Moabite woman. And that's a little bit of a jab because the Moabites had hurt the people of Israel before. So, you know, other foreigners are much more welcome in Israel than the Moabites. You don't want to be the Moabite woman. And then the guy in charge walks over to you, and you're scared because you desperately want to keep this grain and get more. And then what comes out of his mouth astonishes you. My daughter, the first words that come out of his mouth, my daughter, stay on this field. Stay close to the women. I've told the men not to bother you. Well, friends, if, if you're Ruth, how do you feel at that moment? I think you would feel a sense of relief and bewildered joy. This is literally too good to be true. I can't believe this is happening to me, you're thinking. You have to realize what she's saying here, what she says, what, what he's saying here, what he says here and then what he later says back then. Remember, according to the rules, she's got to stay behind everybody and just glean what is left over. But, but he's saying here, stay with the women. And then later he says, just, just give her the, the grain that you pull out of the sheaves. In other words, just... Just hand her the grain. Don't don't make her go through that arduous process of picking up what little she can find. In other words, he's saying to her, my daughter, 
reap what you did not sow, harvest what you did not plant. And she falls down on her face in in humility and wonder at this, that she is the recipient of this remarkable kindness. And she says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? See that there? She realizes she's a foreigner. She realizes she doesn't belong. And later she says, you have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Again, she's saying, I don't belong here. I'm not supposed to be on this field. I'm I'm the odd person out. You've treated me with this exceptional kindness. Really, he's treated her as if she is his daughter. Because only the family would have the right to pick the grain and keep it for themselves. He's not even treating her like one of the workers. The workers pick the grain for a wage that he, he, he would give them. She picks the grain and takes it home. And then they have a meal together. The, the poor people who glean off the field would not be invited to the meal. But not only is she invited to the meal, he serves her again. He's, she's treated like his, his family. What wonderful kindness. Friends, if you're Ruth, how do you feel at that moment? I think you feel utterly overwhelmed. Now, friends, what can we learn from this? Well, I think the most interesting uh, in theological interpretation of this passage is actually given by Boaz. See, this story is a reversal of fortunes, but because of what Boaz says here, it can't be reduced to a simple Cinderella rags-to-riches kind of story. The girl lucks out by marrying the the handsome prince. It's more than that in Boaz's mind. Look there at verse 12. Boaz sees this as, as Ruth fleeing to Israel and coming under the wings of Yahweh, the wings of God. That's how Boaz sees this. Boaz sees that Ruth has come there under God's protection and that Boaz is then an instrument of God to to give her that protection. The the imagery there is beautiful. She comes under God's wings. A, A little bird would hide under the wings of its mother. The world would be a dangerous place for little birds out there, right? There's... They get cold, there's prey, there's other animals that will come down and eat them. But inside that wing, they're safe. And Boaz is saying, you've come under God's wing, so I will give you this protection. Now, I think this is interesting because, honestly, I'm not sure Ruth actually intended to do this. It's tempting, as a preacher, to make a really big deal about what Ruth says to Naomi in chapter 1. Your God will be my God, and, and think that that somehow is evidence of Ruth's of conversion, of of her being a believer in Yahweh. And I'm really not sure that's actually what's going on there. I think it could be just as well that Ruth is thinking in terms of her pagan polytheism that Israel has one God and Moab has another God. I'll I'll choose the God of Israel because I'm going to Israel. I'm not sure she really understands the true nature of God and the protection that he offers. Nevertheless, Boaz sees her actions as far more significant than I think even she sees. He sees that she has come to Israel for protection um, under God. And not only that, Boaz sees himself as an instrument uh, from God, by God, to be used for her protection. One of the things you have to realize about Israel is that they were unique among the nations back then, not only for their worship of the one true God, but also in the way they showed kindness to strangers. That system where the poor could could get food when they had none. Guess what? It didn't only extend to the Israelite citizens. It extended to the foreigners. If you made it to Israel, if you were a foreigner and you made it to Israel, you could eat. That was really good news back then. Because in the other nations, you were much more likely to be eaten than to eat. But you made it to Israel, and they were told to show kindness to the foreigners. 
Why was Israel supposed to do that? Well, because of what God says to them. That they were once foreigners themselves. Uh, In the book of Numbers, it says, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See what God is saying there? You were once foreigners just like they are. You were once outsiders. And if it wasn't for God's loving kindness, they would still be outsiders. The nation of Israel knows they're just like all the other nations, except for the fact that God has brought them in. And therefore, they should show kindness to the people from other nations that come into Israel. And friends, if the nation of Israel was supposed to be a place that showed kindness to the stranger... How much more should the church be that place? Now, let me read to you from uh, Ephesians 2. Here's what Paul says. He says, But remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Skip down a few verses. Paul says, So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, God has shown remarkable kindness to us in taking us who were far away, excluded and separated, and bringing us near, bringing us in Christ. You were once on the outside looking in. And what separated you from Christ was not geographically. It was your own sin and rebellion against God. But in God's infinite kindness, Christ paid the full penalty for that sin so that we who deserve God's wrath, who deserve to be separated from Him, could be brought near, could be close. And friends, in light of that, how should we as the church treat others? Well, friends, the church ought to be a place where the hurting can find refuge. And Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And is not part of what it means to come to Christ, to come into his body? See, just as Boaz realized that he was an instrument of God's kindness and care and love to that one who had fled to Israel for refuge, So also we as the church ought to be an instrument of God's love and care for those who who come into our body. We ought to be a place where the hurting can find relief and rest and strength. And please understand, when I say the church, I don't just mean the pastor or pastors or the deacons. I mean the whole church. The church ought to be thought of as a hospital, but a peculiar hospital because every patient becomes a doctor. And every doctor is also a patient. Well, friends, what does it look like for us to be that body? Well, there are endless areas we could talk about how we can grow in that way because any church has endless areas that they could grow in that way. But I want to give you just a word of encouragement here. I want to read a note from one of our members. It's going to do this at the beginning of the service, but I thought, no, we actually are, have most everybody here later on as we go. This is from Kyoko. She's, I think, probably serving in the nursery right now. So we ought to thank her for that. But if you checked your email this morning, you would have received this in your inbox if you're a member of the church. Here's what she wanted to pass along to our church family. 
She says, last month when my brother passed away unexpectedly, I received your overwhelming support, including heartwarming messages, assistance, and prayers. It was one of the hardest experiences that I've had to go through because I had to face the reality that except for Ian and me, all my family members are not Christians. I strongly believe that my brother's unexpected death has meaning in God's bigger plan for my family in Japan. I have not yet gotten over the deep sorrow of my loss, but throughout this experience, I have seen God's grace all over the place and literally felt like I was surrounded by his love and grace. Although I still feel that half of my heart is numb and that spiritual warfare still goes on inside me due to shock, I would like to give thanks to the Lord who gave me such a wonderful church community like Greenbelt Baptist Church. I also want to thank you for all your thoughts and prayers. It really means a lot to me. Hmm. Praise God for the kindness that she received and the kindness that was given. But let's also as a church grow and continue showing that kindness to one another that, that needs our help, that needs our support. One way, very tangible way you can do that is by giving to our benevolence fund. Friends, you need to know that that money, we take the benevolence offering once a month when we take the Lord's Supper, and there's somebody standing in the back with a plate, and that's how we, as a church, give to the benevolence fund. Friends, you need to realize that that money that gets collected there is used by the deacons to meet real, tangible, practical needs in the life of our body. That money just doesn't sit in an account somewhere. No, it gets used for our church family when people have real needs, and we screen it to make sure that they are real needs, but the money gets used in that way. The early church did such a good job caring for people that it was said there is no poor among them. Friends, may we as a church care for one another as a way that we express the love of Christ to one another, that that we are meeting those physical needs. Well, friends, we could spend hours thinking about God's kindness to us in Christ, who are far away and are brought near, and then what that means for us to show kindness to one another. But I just encourage you, keep thinking about that and, and realize who you are in Christ and God's kindness to you and then think about how you could show that kindness to others. We must move on, though. We have one more person through whose eyes we need to look at, at and that is through the eyes of Naomi. And this is, some, in some sense, the most theologically significant. So, Ruth collects this grain, and she has a ton of grain afterwards. She must have been quite a strong woman, because she takes it all with her back to Bethlehem. And and at this point, I want you to put yourself in Naomi's shoes, okay? You're Naomi, you're hungry, and the pain in your stomach is a reminder that you think God's hand is against you. You were once full, but now you are empty. You are waiting for your daughter-in-law to come back. You're hoping that she's just safe. And you're thinking that maybe she's going to come back with enough grain that we won't starve this week or today. And she comes in the door with this just huge pile of grain. Okay? And then, not only that, she has already prepared food with her. And she says, here, here, this food is for you. I've eaten enough. I'm full. Which is hugely significant for people who probably hadn't had a full meal in weeks. Think of it as uh, she's coming back with that Chipotle, you know, bag overflowing. You know, the portions are huge, so you can eat what you want and then give some to your, your, your you know, family member back home. Well, that's what it's like here. She had so much food. It's, she's filled. She can give it to her family as well. And, and here Naomi goes from being the leftovers to then having leftovers. It's the same word that's used to make a point that now her fortunes have changed 
Uh, and that's very significant to somebody who's just trying to get a full meal. Now, the burning question on Naomi's mind is, who is the man that was kind to you? Naomi immediately recognizes that this is not what you get from just gleaning in the field. No, somebody was abundantly kind to her. And then Ruth answers, without realizing the significance at all of what she's saying, the name of the man whose field I went to is Boaz. And Naomi knows that name. She she sees him at Thanksgiving dinner every year, right? It's a relative of hers. It's the person who, she says, he is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. And then Naomi is humbled and amazed at the kindness of Boaz, and even more so at the kindness of the Lord. And Naomi says, may he, that is Boaz, be blessed by the Lord. And then she says of the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. And then Ruth all of a sudden puts the pieces together realizes that her interaction with Boaz might mean a whole lot more than just grain. And she says, not only that, he asked me to come back tomorrow. Friends, what can we learn from Naomi's perspective? Well, to her, this change of fortunes is not merely about having enough grain or even about having a husband or having family around her. To her, this change of fortunes is about whether or not God is kind See, to have a kind God is really everything. And if God is not kind, you have nothing. I'm reminded of the story of Martin Luther, the 16th century Protestant reformer. And he wrestled with theology. And he was in this constant state of depression. And and he tried to do more good works than were humanly possible. He just tore himself up with it. And his mentor asked him one day, what do you seek? And he said, I seek a loving God. That's what Naomi now realizes she has. See, in the chapter we looked at last week, Naomi said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because that name means bitter. She says, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And now she praises God for his kindness, that he has not forsaken the living or the dead. That that word kindness is a very, very rich Hebrew word. It's it's translated very differently in different parts of the Bible. It It could be translated as love or steadfast love or Covenantal love or loving kindness, faithfulness, faithful love, loyalty. The word kind of has two, it means two things at the same time. It means uh, love in the sense of an emotional um, desire. It means you delight in the person. It means you want to be with them and you want to see them prosper. But it also has this idea of being legally bound to pursue another's good regardless. It's a promise of love. Uh, The best way to, to think of it is in marriage where where at least what marriage ought to be, you have both of those things. You have that love, that joy to be with the person, but you also have that legally binding promise. I will pursue your good regardless. And this is what God has towards his people. Over and over again, in the Bible, God is described as one who is abounding in steadfast love. God says, my steadfast love will not depart from you. The psalmists say, your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And it says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. I think when Naomi reads this book in heaven, which I'm sure she would, she's going to laugh at herself for ever thinking that God's steadfast love could be forsaken. And it, by definition, it is steadfast love. It, it cannot be forsaken. 
She says, the Lord has not, you know, the, God's steadfast love has not forsaken me. But, but it's steadfast love. By definition, can't forsake her. In actuality, she is the one who has, in part, forsaken God for even believing that his steadfast love would not uh, be with her. And yet God takes her out of her pity party by lavishing her with his grace. And friends, the New Testament gives us even more evidence that God is kind. The logic of the New Testament is that if God was willing to send his son to be slaughtered on the cross for everything that we've done wrong, and if God raised him from the dead, and not only that, if God also raised us from the dead with him and seated us with him in this heavenly places, then we can be confident that God will lavish on us all his loving kindness. Paul writes, And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. Though we were alienated and strangers and far away, God has brought us near. God has united us to his Son. And God's loving kindness will no more forsake us than it will forsake his Son. We should be encouraged by that and be confident that his loving kindness will be with us. Friends, there's two sort of ways we experience that loving kindness. Sometimes we experience that loving kindness like Naomi did in that God gives us a good gift on earth to remind us that he's kind. Friends, your church family, though not perfect, is a gift from God in that way. The fact that you can come here week after week in peace and and without being threatened and, and hear God's word and praise God together is kindness to you. The fact that most of us are not struggling with where our next meal will come from is God's kindness. Many of you have spouses that you don't deserve. That's God's kindness to you. So sometimes, like in the case of Naomi in chapter 2, we experience God's kindness with the blessings he gives. But sometimes also, in, like Naomi in chapter 1, God takes away those physical blessings so that we understand that the, God's kindness is rooted not in anything that he gives us, but is rooted in himself. David, in the midst of fleeing from, get this, his own son who was going to try to kill him. And David says, your loving kindness is better than life, so my lips will praise you. So friends, if you have physical blessings, praise God for his kindness. And be an instrument of God's kindness to others by sharing with others when they have need. And friends, if you have no physical benefits, but the Lord himself, then praise God for his kindness. And share with others the knowledge of the greatness of God's character. That even if you don't have anything else, you have him. In in both, we are recipients of God's kindness. And friends, if you don't know God's kindness, look to Jesus. Look to the one who came down in human form, who became like us so that he could redeem us and purchase us back from sin and slavery and bind us to himself. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you and praise you for your loving kindness to us in Christ. Lord, cause us to see the blessings in our lives are markers of your kindness. And cause us to see the the want and pain in our lives as ways in which you are reminding us that if we have you, we have enough. And we would cling to you and trust in you. Lord, help us not be like Naomi, who thought that your 
steadfast love could ever forsake us. But let us have confidence in Christ. And then, Lord, let us go out into our lives in the hundreds and thousands of little decisions and big decisions we need to make each day and be confident that your plan for us in Christ is good. Lord, fill us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.